Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Patrick Bringley about his new book, All the Beauty in the World, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me. Patrick was a museum guard at the Met for over 10 years. His book offers an intimate perspective of one of the greatest art museums in the world, as seen through the eyes of a young man who is dealing with a tragic loss. Joining us today as my special guest is Professor Philip Eliasoff. Dr. Eliasoff is a professor of art history and visual culture at Fairfield University in Connecticut. He is the author of many monographic books and museum catalogs of American painting and has published over 500 reviews, articles, and essays in Art in America, Artist Magazine, and other scholarly publications. Before we begin, I want to advise our audience that listening to this podcast while having the website patrickbringley.com forward slash art open at the same time will allow you to look at the art we will be discussing. Patrick Bringley, Professor Philip Eliasoff, welcome to That Said. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here, Michael, with you and, and Patrick. So, Patrick, you've written a terrific book, All the Beauty in the World, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me. So let's start with the me. Tell us about yourself and your family, and then I want to move to your brother, Tom. Sure. So uh, I worked as a guard at the Met for 10 years, so that's the and me part. And I'm sitting here in Brooklyn. I've got, you mentioned my family, I've got a couple of kids that I had over the course of my working at the Mets. But yeah, the book details how I got there and all all the years that I spent there on post. So, though, you started out out of college with The New Yorker. And one would think that you don't go from The New Yorker to a museum guard. So tell us about that journey. How did that come to pass? Sure. So, yeah, when I got the job, I was right out of college. I was actually just 21 years old. And, you know, of course, you get a job at the New Yorker. And even though it wasn't a writing job, it was at the editorial events office. But you're still, you know, you're rubbing shoulders with Mark Singer and David Remnick and stuff. And you're in a skyscraper in 42nd Street and Broadway. So you feel like you're just at the center of the world. And in a way, that was very exciting. But in a way, too, I felt like it's a dangerous thing to feel like you have somehow made it when you're just 21 years old. You, in fact, haven't made it. You, in fact, haven't written anything. You haven't kind of thought original thoughts or or lived much of life yet. So I, uh, you know, in some ways I was flourishing there, but in some ways I was kind of stunted. I wasn't really writing. I wasn't really thinking. And then my brother got ill while I was there. My older brother, Tom, who was um, two years older than I am, and he had what's called a soft tissue sarcoma. And, uh, you know, he got it removed and he had radiation and chemotherapy, but it metastasized and it, you know, became clear at some point that that wasn't something that he was going to survive. Um, so what that meant is that all of a sudden I was, you know, leaving the Midtown offices and spending time in his apartment in Queens and spending time in Beth Israel Hospital in these quiet rooms where obviously very kind of momentous things were happening to Tom and to my family. And it was filled with so much pain, but also so much love. 
And the contrast between that world, that sort of quiet, little straightforward world, and then going back to some office in Midtown where, you know, you're just, I don't know, trying to get a new sponsor for our New Yorker festival event or whatever the case may be, was, I found it unbearable um, after a while. I just kind of, you know, when Tom finally died, I had no stomach to go rush back to kind of the so-called real world of, of kind of what seemed very trivial concerns. I felt speechless. I kind of wanted to remain speechless. So it occurred to me, well, there's this job I could take that's this sort of straightforward and honest job in a beautiful, numinous place um, where I wouldn't have to be pushing any ball forward, where I could just stand back and kind of commune with these beautiful things. The Egyptian circle of life, as opposed to the pushing forward module that we all are stuck in, in some sense. Yes? Yeah, exactly right. Like, you know, I don't know, this this clippity-clop of time where you just feel like you're you're on one thing and then you're on another thing and and um you know in, in some ways when you're when you're grieving i think that that kind of stops time sort of stops that way because you kind of you kind of feel disconnected from that rushing around of the world that you see outside because you all of a sudden kind of have a new vision um, and then also of course that is the feeling i think that often one finds in art museums because you're around timeless stuff you're around things that are still you're around quiet and it seems nonsensical to just be thinking about the next little, you know, small uh, concern that seems to be coming down the pike. Yeah. So it's taking your place on the great Mandela, as Peter, Paul and Mary sang. So why did you decide to write the book? Yeah. So, you know, I've always I've always written, although up until, you know, the, when the book published a couple weeks ago, I had never really had anything published. I, but I've always you know, scribbled things. And I've always kind of, you know, written poetry and stuff when I was a kid and through college. And so I always was scribbling away, at least in my mind, I would say that maybe five or six years into the job, I thought to myself, well, maybe I could try to write a guard's guide to the Met. And maybe that could be, you know, mix in anecdotes about visitors that I see and um, things about the guards and then things about the art that I sort of discover. But when I when I tried to write that, I realized that uh, there was something very messy about it. And I don't know, it kind of wasn't it wasn't beautiful in any way. It was just sort of this scattershot, you know, back and forth between different artworks. And I realized that the thing that's that's not often written about art is the subjective experience of looking at art. But to tell the story of the subjective experience of looking at art, you got to know who the subject is. So I realized that this has got to be a memoir. It's got to be a story where people know who I am. And because I had this job as a guard, it, you know, began to occur to me as people spoke to me and stuff that people can identify in some ways with the guard because we in some ways are like them. We're just normal people that are hanging out in the galleries and that maybe I could write a book that's of course about me, but also would you know, people could see themselves, anyone who wanders into a museum and is quiet for a little while could see themselves in me as well. Hmm. The book, though, is really, in some sense, a meditation on life and grieving and consolation. And what touched me in it was how 
standing still in this sort of great moment of, of loneliness that you were experiencing after your brother's passing. And he was, what, 27? Yeah, almost 27, 26, yeah. Yeah, there's this sort of perfect loneliness that you seem to experience there. You wrote that while there is a guard, you say, my heart is full, my heart is breaking, and I badly want to stand still for a while. I arrive at the Met with no thought of moving forward in perfect loneliness, which really sets the tone of this. So it is, it's not photos at the Met. It's Patrick Bringley teaching us about life. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, what strikes me about the Met is I would never write a book about the Met that is about just art because I don't think that the Met is about just art because art is not about just art. You know, when you're looking at art, it oftentimes or most of the time doesn't really want you to just be evaluating this as, um, you know, oil on canvas or as a, a stone sculpture that's been carved. It has a subject matter and it wants you to be thinking about that subject matter. It wants you to be thinking about, you know, the passion of Christ, which is an old word that means suffering, or it wants you to be thinking about, you know, the majesty of the cosmos if you're looking at you know a a iranian mirab or something it wants you to be looking through that tile work to what is this existence that we're living in what is this beautiful world that we're living in that's full of glory but also pain and what is all this and you know as a guard i was very privileged to be able to just stand in those galleries amidst all this stuff and think about the content of it as well as just, you know, what it is as an art historical, um, you know, document. You write that it's one thing to sit on a park bench for an hour or two. It's another to spend an entire day sharing quiet rooms with oblivious strangers. It's an intimacy that must be known to butlers who disappear behind their silver trays. Only I am not just incidentally a pair of eyes and ears. It is my main duty. So talk about being a guard and then, Philip and I were talking before you came on about the guard class and the board class at the Met. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about that. And then ultimately, I want to get to the museum itself. Sure. Yeah. So what I'm referring to there, too, is that not only am I there absorbing these artworks, but all of these people. I mean, it's just the best people watching job you can imagine for the ways that I just sketched out there is that. If you want to be invisible, you easily can be. I mean, if you just stand in the doorway and you have a bit of a distracted look on your face or, you know, people usually aren't going to talk to you. They're barely even going to notice you. And these people are coming from all over the world. And unlike if you're just on a city street where people are just flowing by, there you're seeing people having conversations with one another and you're seeing them evaluating new information and evaluating a new experience. And it's, it's fun. It's fun to watch all that. And then, of course, you know, the part of a guard I'm sure we'll get to is that you also have duties, of course. I mean, you're intervening when you see people doing potentially harmful things or dangerous things, and you're watching out for their safety. You're watching out for the safety of others and just sort of the well-being of the place. But the reality is, is that no matter how much you're telling people, you know, not so close and how much you're um, giving them directions and telling them to put their, you know, 
tuna fish salad sandwich away or whatever the case may be, uh, you still have time to kind of be watchful. You say that as a guard, you are left alone and you're content with your silence, but you're perfectly botherable too. So there's that dichotomy, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that, you know, some museums are moving toward a model of having guards who have interest and a degree even maybe in like being kind of docents too. And to me, I I understand that instinct, but I also find it to be a bit of a shame because that's going to attract a certain type of person who wants to be having conversation with you and who has a degree in art history and or whatever the case may be. Whereas the beauty of the guards at the Met is they're every kind of person who have had every kind of different background in education. And they are content to just stand back perfectly quietly, but you can also have conversations with them. And as a result, the range of styles in which they relate to the arts and relate to the world is so diverse that you wouldn't get with somebody who is wearing an ask me anything button and, you know, in a polo shirt and really wanting to have a conversation with you. And you write of your cohort there, that the glory of this unskilled job, and we'll call people unskilled, I'm not sure that I accept that, but versus a neurosurgeon, the glory of unskilled job is that it is comprised of people with a fantastic range of skills and backgrounds to work with. So you developed a a pretty supportive network over time, and that it seemed, and tell me if I got it wrong, it seemed helped you with your grieving process to have interactions with this class, to use a word that I don't mean in any pejorative way, of people as opposed to your New Yorker group? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was just 25 years old when I started there, and I was 35 years old when I left. So those are pretty critical years to sort of figure out how you're going to be sort of a full-blown adult in this world. You know, when you're just out of college, you're just out of college. You're still looking around. You're trying to be cool. You're trying to, you know, impress your friends or whatever, but you need to figure out who you like, what sort of your cadence is in which you're going to just be talking to guys on the streets and in which, how you're going to have friendships and how you're going to actually, you know, have adult conversations about, you know, loss and about things like this. And I was very privileged to be able to do it in the company of, an extraordinary range of people, an extraordinary range in ages too. I'm very lucky that my colleagues very frequently, you know, my best buds were 55, 60 years old or something, which is just very different than working where maybe the boss is 55 years old, but most of your colleagues are, you know, roughly your age and in your own sort of situation and trajectory in life. And all of those things just, I don't know, it, I found it very moving. I learned a lot. It helped me with my grief to the extent that it, I don't know, it, it put me back into rhythm. It helped me figure out who I am. It helped me figure out what my voice was. And yeah, I, I owe it a lot. And Philip, you liked very much the, what you called the ground up view of the Met. I, I yeah, think I, of the Met as, um, you know, the Met Gala and a very different class of person that then Patrick is describing. Tell, talk to me about your reaction to, have this, to the book on that, on that level. 
look, we understand the Met is an extraordinary institution. It's you know, we arguably the greatest encyclopedic museum in the world. And that means it is it is the best of the best in every way from the top down. You know, I, I've studied and worked on projects and understanding that the, even the Met board, this is probably the most powerful board of trustees of any institution in, in the United States, maybe even the world. And what was so valuable in in this sort of from the ground up, this worm's eye view of how the organic institution worked from the depths below of, you know, the corridors of art in transit and what we don't see. Patrick's book really gives us that kind of x-ray of behind the scenes. And for people, for those of us who love the, the museum and feel it is our, our home, the way, you know, sometimes people live in Manhattan, say Central Park is their backyard. And certainly for those of us who spent our lives in the museum, uh, Patrick's done us a great service. He's given us a tremendously um, unseen, uh, sort of lifted the curtain to the inner. I learned things, Patrick, about the, you know, the, the guard stains on the wall. I'm going to look for those stains on the wall. Do so, do so. Uh, I, I learned all kinds of things about the shift. Um, I, I wonder why that you can, why are the, the polyester suit? Why don't they, uh, is it because, uh, they don't want, it's, you have to pay for the suit and that's why you, or the $80 sock allowance. I mean, these are fascinating details, but all part of the big picture of this place that is a, you know, when you walk through that place, you're in a home and yet you're not, you're in a place filled with mystery. So, so you're, you've deconstructed that for us. So talk a little bit, uh, Philip mentioned stains on the wall, which people won't understand. Um, so talk a little bit about that. And then we, I want to move forward, but the one question I want you to, answer after you talk about the guard stains and the socks and that stuff is why don't they give you benches? Why can't you lean against a stool or something? Why do you have to stand up on marble for eight hours at a time? So talk a little bit about that. Cause I always in reading that, I thought like, boy, that's abusive. Yeah, sure. So yeah, the term of art for them is guard marks. Uh, you'll see, I'm sure not only at the Met, but in many museums, if you pay attention and you look in the walls, You'll notice the places where the guards habitually lean um, and in at the Met, you know, so if it's on a white wall, oftentimes it'll be, you know, they'll, they'll paint it over in time. But at the Met, you'll see some on stone walls that have been developing there for 100 years or more. And you can probably spot there'll be a guard leaning on it at that time. And then when they come off the wall, you'll see this sort of cloud of dark blue um, from their suits. Uh, the, the $80 you mentioned, that's the, what's called the hose allowance. And everyone loves that little detail. Uh, at some point, the union, um, negotiated that we get $80 paid annually for socks. They also, I guess because that's the one part of the uniform they don't give us, they issue us shoes. We get our shirts dry cleaned, you know, returned to us, you know, the suits pressed, things like that. As far as why guards stand, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because they don't stand in Europe, but they stand basically everywhere in America. And I don't know exactly why it is. I mean, obviously the, you know, the, the reason for it, um, I don't know what the historical reason for it, but the sort of sensical reason for it is just to remain alert. So you won't be sleeping. If you're sitting on that bench, you know, maybe you would nod off that you're circulating. 
Because usually, you know, if you have a post, it doesn't mean you're standing in one place. You usually have two, three galleries or something that you're covering. So they want you moving. But yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate. I was young. So, you know, my legs would be get very tired, but, you know, they would hold up okay. But of course, some of the older guards, you know, that's, that's a, that's a real burden. Yeah. Well, just maybe, maybe, maybe uh, your union, DC 37, local 1503. Take a look at what, what it's like. Take some photographs. When I'm in the Uffizi or in the Gallery de Borghese, not only are the guards sitting, some of them are on their cell phones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, you know, that's what they really don't want. They really don't want you on your cell phone. I, you know, people, people ask me sometimes, you know, would you write on post? And yeah, I would have a little reporter's notebook here and make little, you know, notes, obviously not to excess, but make little notes. But I always say that, you know, Probably you would have gotten yelled at in the past for that, but now that seems so quaint to be writing on physical paper that nobody's going to crack down on you for that. They just don't want you on your cell phone. Okay, so I want to move forward. But actually, I say that, then I'm going to say, well, I want you to talk about you at age 11. So we're moving forward, but starting with you at age 11, because you write in the book, that at age 11, you found yourself at the Met for the very first time looking at the harvesters. And you say that you responded to that great painting in a way that you believed is fundamental to the peculiar power of art. Namely, you experienced the great beauty of the picture, even as you had no idea what to do with the beauty. I couldn't discharge the feeling by talking about it. There was nothing much to say. What was beautiful in the painting was not like words. It was like paint, silent, direct, and concrete, resisting translation even into thought. As such, my response to the picture was trapped inside me, a bird fluttering in my chest. I didn't know what to make of it. It has always been hard to know what to make of that. So can you talk about Patrick Bringley at age 11, looking at the harvesters and this emotion, I think, which we'll ask Philip to talk about, which I expect his students in college should be feeling the same way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was I was 11 years old. My my parents like to just take one kid on a trip sometimes. So I was just with my mom. And uh, yeah, I mean, what I remember of that day is usually when you go to the Met, you're you're running all around you're you know you're going you're seeing Egyptian stuff and then seeing Greek stuff and that's one important thing to do in the Met just kind of get the lay of the land feel the vastness of the place but also you know when you have an interaction with a work of art that seems so beautiful that oftentimes there's there's a puzzling aspect to it I mean there's there's something that feels wonderful about it but also feels like what what even is there to say? I think that that's actually what motivates a lot of people these days to pick up their camera and take a picture of it because there's something transactional about that. It's like, okay, well, now I've taken a picture of it so like I can move on because it gives us the, this illusion that now that is sort of captured. But I think, in fact, the much more essential experience to have with art is that direct experience where you feel that you're having a response to it, whether that response is like, oh my God, can you even believe that? Or whether that response is to the poignancy of what you're looking at, if there's something sad about it, if there's something just luminous about it or delicate about it. And I think it's very hard to write about. So I think 
when people write about art, particularly academics, they usually are not writing about that aspect of art, that sort of experiential aspect. They're writing valuable things, but on a different level of about their history, about their iconography, whatever the case may be. And I found to this day, I find it very difficult to write about it, but I did my damnedest. And I think really the only way to write about it is to kind of somehow make it a story. So in some ways, that little response that you you outlined there, you know, trying to make something of that was kind of my motivation for trying to write the book all those years later. So Philip, you spend your life teaching art history and you bring classes of students to the Met year over a year. Tell us about what your reaction to what Patrick has said, because I know from your writing that you actually try to talk about the types of things that Patrick is talking about, in addition to your pure academic, this is who Paul Cadmus was and why he's an important artist, et cetera. Well, let's, let me just backtrack a little bit to what Patrick had mentioned about this transactional moment of taking the photograph, capturing the image. And I'm going to ask you a question first, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that experience of being in the gallery, in the Northern Gallery, looking at the, the great Bruegel uh, of the harvesters. But, you know, I'm in a classroom with uh, Gen Z, Patrick, and it's it's a challenge. It's also frustrating. What is your sense when you see the visitor, someone who was uh, of, I'm going to say, of an age, let's say, of that person that is in their 60s or 70s, who grew up in the literary culture, the, the culture where um, books and and ideas had an abstract quality. Now they're standing in front of an old master painting, as opposed to the Gen Z who uh, are growing up in a completely digitized artificial reality, virtual reality. How have you seen the response? You know, do you feel it that the the 19 year old who is maybe saw the immersive Van Gogh downtown, standing in looking at the Van Goghs upstairs. Give us an idea of your observation, because you're such a good observer, of that difference between the 19-year-old and the 69-year-old. I would say that both groups have an abundance of people who are looking in a superficial manner at the arts and a lesser amount of people that are very moved by the arts. So I don't know how I would sort of, maybe the numbers are slanted. So it's more of the younger. I don't really know. That would be hard to tell. I can tell you that every time I kind of had a sort of stereotype of how a visitor would respond to things that that was usually did not hold up, was sort of torn out. Like I would have some sort of, you know, I remember a young man who was walking through the galleries and he had just music blasting from his ears. So I went to tell him to take the earbuds out and I was expecting him to be rude. I was just expecting that. I was bracing for that. And he was like a sweetheart. And then he asked me about these paintings and he didn't know what the hell he was looking at. And oftentimes the people who don't know what the hell they're looking at, they are very open to having a conversation with the guard. And if you can get them engaged, they they can be engaged. I mean, I mentioned that a lot of people are asking, is this real? And there are some people that, of course, you know, 
maybe they would prefer the immersive Van Gogh exhibition or something because it's big or whatever the heck. But there are some people that ask you, and they, they're usually a kid or something, they'll ask you, is this real about the Van Goghs? And you'll tell them that it is real. And that means the world to them. They can't believe it. They can't, they thought, you know, vaguely they thought that those were locked in some, you know, rich man's vault or something. And then they, okay. they go up to it and maybe they just take a selfie, but maybe they really look. I don't know. Okay. Well, you have, I love when you describe the periods, maybe during whether of boredom or of trying to stimulate your mind of counting all the figures in these old master paintings and certainly the Bruegel being in that room and seeing this painting, which is, you know, so almost, it's almost telescopic. You, you, you're standing there and you're looking at a view of the world that no person had ever imagined before. I think also that the beauty of that masterpiece being there and looking at a painting from 1565, Bruegel painting is, uh, everything about the lives of those peasants, about those commoners, and it so perfectly defines a, a zeitgeist of Northern Europe, of that moment, you're so there. I I felt as enriched, my great moment with the, growing up with the Bruegel, as you did when you were 11 years old, my other bookend was standing in front of the Hunters in the Snow when I was in Vienna at the, at the Kunstdeskirchisch Museum, and I felt the completion of my life that here's two of the four of the great series. And well, these are hard things to describe. It's, it's, that's the poetry of it all, isn't it, Patrick? That's the poetry of it. Yes. And I have not been to Vienna, so I have yet to have that moment, but I, I hope to do some, do so at some point. I love the way Berenson would say these things are like orphans and they're not in their original context. And and you were you were sort of the shepherd and the guardian of this this great orphanage. There's a um, speaking of the New Yorker and the Bruegel. There's a great uh, New Yorker profile that Lillian Ross, who was still there when I was there, she was ninety something, um, wrote of Ernest Hemingway in the fifties. She profiled him when she was like twenty three, and they're wandering through the Met, and Hemingway wants to see the Bruegel, and that gallery is closed, probably just a manpower closing. I know these days. But, um, and he's mad and he says, he says, um, so he has to describe it to Lillian Ross and he says, uh, it's a picture of a lot of people cutting grain, but Bruegel has painted the grain geometrically to create an emotion that is so strong in me, I can hardly take it. And I like that because it's somewhat full with kind of Hemingway bravado, but it also is sort of wonderfully inarticulate in that same way that I was describing it that for some reason that that sweep of the grain that he paints creates an emotion in you that's so strong you cannot take it so i should have asked this earlier on so people who may not be from new york or have not had an opportunity to go to new york to tell us just a little bit about the history of the metropolitan museum of art we say the met and you want to be clear that we're not talking about the new york mets we're talking about the metropolitan museum of art so give us just a, a short history because i want to get to the art before we run out of time, but give us a little bit of a history of, of the Met because you outlined it in the book nicely. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one thing to know is, so you're going to approach the Met if you've never been there and you're going to see this huge facade that stretches from 80th street to 84th street. And it kind of tricks you into thinking that the Mets are sort of sprung up and was this grand institution all at once. But in fact, no, it was built bit by bit by bit. And it's a bunch of different buildings that are all sort of connected together sometimes seamlessly, sometimes not so seamlessly. 
And it still exists in the Gars lingo because the original Met was built in 1880. Well, the original building, there was a Met in a different building in 1870, was built in 1880. And the guards call that Section A. And it is the old medieval wing that's in the center. And it's kind of this big airless building. And what's interesting about the Met is it wasn't a big sort of royal collection because in America, we don't have sort of a landed aristocracy, right? So as a result, it was just a bunch of political reformers and it was merchants and it was some painters and poets and things. And they were trying to sort of ape what they had in Europe, but they had to do it with just kind of cheating their way through. And in some ways it was a scrappy little institution, but has just grown and grown and grown. We talked, Philip and I, is the we in that sentence, Philip and I talked to the author of Picasso's War, which is a book that when people listen to this podcast, they should go back and listen to the Picasso's War podcast, because that's essentially about the creation of the Museum of Modern Art. And the same thing, uh, merchants, financiers, reformers, artists, all sort of like trying to help this museum find itself because there was no landed aristocracy. The Louvre, if you look at it, was, you know, the collection of royalty. And we don't have, thankfully, royalty in the U.S. But one thing that struck me was a statistic you said, and I'll read it. You said, the amazing statistic about the Met is that it welcomes almost 7 million visitors a year. That's greater than the attendance of the Yankees, the Mets, the Giants, the Jets, the Knicks, and the Nets combined, more than the Statue of Liberty and the Empire State Building. Remarkable, isn't it? It is. Yeah, sometimes on like the time, maybe Thanksgiving week or Christmas week, we would have our busiest week of the year. And sometimes at the end of the night, all the guards are in the Great Hall before we get dismissed. And management would come and bring us in and they would say, there were 35,000 people here today. Thanks. Have a good night. We'll do it again tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's it, it. They pack them in. So I'd like to now sort of like have you be our uh, tour guide through the Met, because the thing that you said, but I'll state it for emphasis, is that guards are assigned rooms and within the room, they have stations and they move. And that's why you have these specific stains in specific areas, because that's the guards standing station. And then over a decade in the museum, you would go room to room. You'd have your home base at one point, but really you'd go room to room. And so you really become a sort of docent in a way, quietly, as you move from room to room. So I want to move from room to room with you to a certain extent, not all the rooms, obviously, but some of the ones that touched you. And I'd like to start with the old master's wing. You did something very funny, which was you counted the number of inhabitants in the 596 paintings in the old master's room. So tell us, tell us about that. Cause that, that was just made me smile ear to ear. I mean, you know, people are like, Oh my God, how, how would you have the time to do that? And it's like, you have no idea how much time I have. I mean, I did that. I just did it a gallery at a time. It was sort of a project I did maybe a year or two in. And I was like, all right. So I'm posted here in the morning. And when you start counting, you realize that, you know, hidden in some of these, you know, a bullfight scene or something, there's hundreds of people. And it just makes the place feel so inhabited. So I think I found that, you know, it's the size of a small town. There were 9,000 or a little less than 9,000 people on the walls at that time. 
I think you said 8,496 inhabitants occupy 596 paintings spanning from a period from mid-1200s to the mid-1800s. So that was your little village. Yeah, exactly right. You write that wandering the wing, I feel something like a traveler in a strange and distant land, like being in a foreign city alone without language, without a companion poking me in the sides. You know how fantastically immersive the experience can be. You almost dissolve into it. There is a poetry about it. And as long as you glide through watchfully, the spell won't break. Yes, yes. I I think that there's an ability that if you're in, you know, a different place to be truly watchful and to kind of lose yourself. And all of a sudden, everything around you takes a sort of significance so, you know, even though maybe the, the sun gleaming on the street here in Brooklyn is just as beautiful as it would look in Tuscany, like in some ways it, it's more magical if you're there. And and I think one thing that you can do with the Met is sort of be a kind of traveler. And I was I was very much in the mood to kind of just forget myself and sort of accept accept this world that I was in and its magic. In the old master's room, the first painting that you spend some time talking about, besides the harvesters that we just talked about, was the paintings of Vermeer. So tell us about that. And then, Philip, I want you to tell me, too, who is Vermeer and his ability to to capture light in ways that nobody else has accomplished, it seems. Sure. So, yeah, I mentioned um, there's the, they, I think it's called the Made Asleep. Uh, or something like that. They're one of the five Vermeers, shockingly, that they have at the Met. And oftentimes Vermeer, he's painting the domestic interior almost always. And there seems to just be an infinite quiet to those interiors, particularly when this maid is asleep. And there's there's light that just seems to be kind of blessing the room in a way. And what I found moving about it is, of course, you know, he's not painting some grand cathedral but it's exalted in its own kind of quiet, ordinary way. And I felt very much that that's how it felt in those hospital rooms that I had spent, you know, two plus years in on and off. And there was a similar feeling in an art gallery. You said of it that it possessed an intimate grandeur and holiness of its own. So, Philip, talk about Vermeer a little bit. Who was he? Patrick just said, shockingly, we have five. How many are there? Well, there were, we thought the total count was 34, but now we have a new 30, number 35. So try to imagine that visit to the Met with all of the choices, that would be for the type of visitor who would be the, the serious art visitor. Seeing the, the room with the five Vermeers is one of the great moments in the world. And imagine later that afternoon, those visitors from San Francisco or from Tokyo can walk a mile to the south in in the Frick when it reopens, you have three more. So to see eight Vermeers within a day, uh, knowing that throngs of tourists right now are crowding into the Rijksmuseum, the big, big, you know, the Super Bowl of Vermeerism is taking place right now in Amsterdam. And it's entirely sold out. People are traveling from all over the world to see this. So look, with Vermeer, we're talking about something extraordinary. We're looking about an artist who, in fact, in his own time, 
unlike Raphael and Titian and, and Rubens was not such a stellar figure, is really a, like a, more of a 20th century rediscovery, a little bit like Piero della Francesca. The world of Vermeer is simply the, the ineffable, the transcendent, the magic that Patrick felt in communion with the loss, the sacred nature of these paintings, their stillness, their sense of introspection, meditation, light, all of it is there. And that's the great gift. I, when I'm teaching Vermeer, I like to say to the students, every one of them is a miracle. And you don't experience miracles every day. How these paintings arrived in New York is for a whole other, maybe Patrick, your next book. But the story of how they arrived on Fifth Avenue is one of the great tales of the modern world. So I want to keep going. The museum's going to close in a half hour or so. I want Patrick to take us through a little bit more of it and moving into the Venetian galleries. Venice, the word in, from Latin, I guess, was sea blue. It was a chain of 118 islands boasting the brightest and deepest colors of the sea. And the greatest, I think, greatest 16th century Venetian painter, Tiziano Vecellio, known as Titian, has a painting there called Venus and Adonis. And you write of the Titian paintings that they are so beautiful, so tenderly flush with life that it seems to be itself living. In the paintings, time appears as if past and future are subsumed by the vital present. It's as if the subject of his painting somehow is exempt from time's pitiless arrow. So talk about that. But I want to just pause to say, your writing is beautiful. You would have done great at the New Yorker. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm talking, I'm talking there in particular about one of the less famous Titian paintings, which is just this portrait that he made when he was maybe 25 years old. And he's painting a man who also is maybe 25 years old or so. We don't know who that man is. And I think that there is a quality to painted portraits, a great painted portrait that it feels qualitatively different than looking at, you know, a photograph because a photograph is necessarily a tiny moment in time. It's a snapshot. Whereas a painted portrait sometimes seems because it was made slowly, because it can be experienced slowly, that it seems to somehow be like when you close your eyes and you think about someone, a whole kind of image emerges of them. That's not just kind of one moment. They kind of have a feel to them, a certain... And I feel like that's what that Titian portrait is. It just looks so angelic that it's like the essence of that young man rather than just him in a moment in time. And I found that to be, um, you know, very moving too, because it, in some ways it kind of matched my internal vision I had of my brother. Not that they look anything the same. And I love Titian. <laughs> I love him to death. And Philip, tell us a little bit about Titian, mindful that the museum is closing. But what is it about Titian that touches Patrick this way and everyone else as well? Well, it, first of all, the the material, the, the, the method is, is a revolution. That is, it's really in the Venetian school towards the end of the 15th century with the Bellini uh, family and then into the 1500s, into the world of Titian and Tintoretto. 
they're using oil paint with a level of, of colorism and expressivity that has a resonance to it. And that sense of vitality, of touch, of light, of being there was, you know, when the conservators do the study and they do the x-rays, this painting might have had 25 or 30 layers of paint simulating the greatest possible way to simulate another human being in the flesh. And uh, that's the allure. These are masters who, to their, at the touch of their brush, are bringing us as close to the sense of light, shadow, chiaroscuro, everything about. And in art school, we learn that the most difficult, the great, the final challenge, how well can you paint the human face? And in the world of Titian and Veronese, they just explode with this new powerful painting uh, material method of using oil. You write, Patrick, that much of the greatest art seeks to remind us of the obvious. This is real, is all it says. Take the time to stop and imagine more fully the things you already know. But we forget these things. They become less vivid, and we have to return as we do to the paintings and face them again and again. So talk about that, because you go to the museums, and I am guilty of this, and you see people rushing through. Let me see the, I got to see the Mona Lisa. I got to see the the Venus de Milo. I've got to see this. It's a greatest hits tour, and then they're gone. Whereas you are saying, no, 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 no. That's all wrong. You have to live with the painting and understand what it's teaching us about life at that moment. So talk about that because it is important to your writing, was important to your period of mourning to live this quietude in front of these paintings and find some serenity in doing so. Yeah. So in that passage, I'm talking about this you know, 14th century painting of a crucifixion. And when you look at a painting like that, I mean, it's not, you know, what's it about? It's about suffering. It's about death. It's about loss. It's about the the mother crumpled to the ground at the base of the cross. And these are all things that we know. We know that we're going to die. We know that, that, but it's still, it builds compassion in us. It builds a sort of fuller understanding of the poignance of life to meditate on such things. And you can do that in an art museum. You can return and you can think about that quiet, intimate sort of a thing. Or alternatively, you could think about some fast thing. So, you know, some art is trying to just impress upon you the glory of all creation or something. Maybe it's in the Islamic wing. And similarly, that's not a sophisticated message, but it's a message that you you have to hear and you go to an art museum and you look around and you go, my God, this world is incredible. Yes. Philip, tell us a little bit about this living in the midst of of the art, as opposed to zooming your way through the museum for the greatest hits. Because I know from having been with you at museums, though the audience knows, Philip and I have known each other since the seventh grade, and he and his wife, Yael, and I lived in Perugia. Italy, when I was studying Italian at the University of Pestanieri, and Philip and, and Yael and I would go to these museums and he'd say, stop and look and 
learn something for God's sakes, you know, we don't have to rush through this. So talk a little bit about what Patrick is onto here, because I think it's an important theme in the book. And when people read the book, they need to appreciate the wisdom that Patrick is trying to instill in us. Simon and Garfunkel, slow down. You move too fast. Try to make moment last. I mean, this is the first thing of, and Patrick knows this, the, the, the tourist who has to see it all and, you know, wants to see the Van Goghs and the, and the Renoirs and the Monets and, uh, and a little bit of Egypt. They are, they're just on the, on the, on the bicycle. They just are on the tour. They're not there to really appreciate the art, but to check it off and to say they've seen it. And some, Patrick, how amusingly when you say that the great disappointment for those that are looking for the dinosaur, for the stegosaurus or for the tyrant, you know, they're, and you tell them you have to walk across the park. Did that happen really very often? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I would say once a month or so. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, they're in the wrong met or, or they're looking for the opera to start at eight o'clock. Anyway, uh, look, we're living in a frenetically paced society. We're losing touch with the what matters. What matters is thought, contemplation, reading, reading, being, slowing down. And the appreciation of these artworks is going to require that, that sense of introspection and being willing to communicate what was the world like at this time when, when a, someone took a block of marble in Athens as you write so beautifully, about 150 years after Homer, if there was a Homer, <laughs> finishes the Odyssey, and 150 years before before Plato and, Aris, and, and Socrates, and you're writing about what did it mean to carve that human being, to create something, another human being in marble. You know, he's one of my best friends in the museum. Whenever I, I'm in New York, it's always, whenever in... It's always morning in the Met with the natural daylight, the eastern sunlight flowing through the eastern windows, light on marble. How marvelous to be back in Athens in a cemetery honoring a a young man of military age, New York Koros, the beginning of figurative tradition of Western art. How, How enriching, how special, but you've got to take the moment. I want to move to something else from these Western tradition arts, because you write about a scroll. I don't know if you call it a scroll painting or drawing. I'm not sure what a scroll is classified. Yeah, painting. Is it painting? painting. And one of Zhao Zi called Old Trees Level Distance. And he was a Northern Song dynasty master scroll painter and he writes of his of his own landscape paintings that they allow escape from the everyday world to a place where the flight of cranes and the howling of apes are our frequent intimacy this touched you deeply it seemed patrick and so can you talk about old trees Level distance? Sure. So, you know, one thing, there's many fascinating things about those hand scroll paintings. 
One is that, you know, those of us who grew up in a Western tradition, we just sort of think to ourselves that a natural way to have a painting is sort of a rectangle in a frame. But in fact, that's a peculiar tradition of its own. And most cultures don't have that. And a hand scroll painting was held in the hands and slowly turned. And so it would have a time component. It sort of is forcing what we were just talking about, that you have to take time with it. You sort of watch its progress as you slowly turn through a landscape that the Gaoshi isn't that long, but some of them are 20 feet long or so. And your eye is taking a hike sort of through this landscape. You really shrink down into it. And like he said, you can kind of experience like you're in another place. But what I found moving about it is, you know, the thing is black and white. So it's not that you're actually going to another place. You know that. You're going through a sort of mediated version of that other place. You're going through his consciousness, having sort of absorbed this. And then it came out through his arm and he beautifully painted it. And it's a sort of melding of the human consciousness with the outside world. And to look at something like that, it just makes you want to be a better seer. It makes you want to see the world more minutely, more creatively, and also a better thinker. It's just, it's, you know, it's so beautiful. You write of it, my eyes could never exhaust this scroll, and neither could my mind. So I drift into an even deeper silence, trying to absorb the fullness of the world it presents to me. Poetry. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, Philip, one of the things that Patrick writes, and we've talked about this a bit, but I want to return to this theme about looking at art. He says that over the years that he was in the museum, he came to develop a method of approaching a work of art, to resist the temptation to hunt right away for something singular about the work, what he called the big deal, I suppose Mona Lisa's smile or, or something, that which draws the focus of textbook writers. For you, you say, Patrick, the first step is in any encounter with art is to do nothing, to just watch, giving your eye a chance to absorb all that's there. Art needs time to perform its work on us. So can each of you talk about this? Art needs time to perform its work on us. It's a theme that we've just uh, coming back to because I want to remind myself to slow down and not move too fast. But my thought, again, that art needs time to perform its work on us is, is a wonderful thing that you've learned over 10 years looking at art in the Met. So talk about that and Philip then chime in, okay? Sure. Uh, yes, I think that you don't want to put yourself in between you and the work of art, it, meaning you don't want to look at something and you think, oh, you know, this is a Baroque painting, so that means this and that and the other thing, or, you know, I don't particularly like this artist, because anytime you do that, you're not just, you're not looking at what's there. You're not, so the first thing to do is figure out what's there. The second thing to do is to report on yourself to yourself. Am I feeling something? You know, there's a subjective element and an objective element because there, it's performing work on you. And is it doing that work? Is it making you feel something? Is it what we were talking about earlier of the Bruegel? Is that sort of vibrating happening in your chest? And you become more attuned to that the more you do it. Philip, what say you? Well, again, the when one reads some of the great uh, interpreters 
art historians, art critics, going back the Bloomsbury writers, going back into the early 20th century, I'm always very jealous because I wish I could look at the art in a pre-media context. We grew up watching, you know, television and watching web TV westerns and going to cinemascope spectacles and going to movies like Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments, all the way to Star Wars and George Lucas and Spielberg movies. I'm always struggling for my students to try to look at the world, not through the eyes of the 21st century, but to try to understand how Canaletto looked at Venice through the purity of his uh, vision of that that space, how Rubens or how Hogarth looks at London and British society. This is, for me, the greatest challenge. I feel that we have been corrupted visually and corrupted. And I I wish we, when I walk into the museum, I want to strip myself of of all this media saturation, this multi-sensorial, and I want to look at these paintings, you know, to look at that great Tadeo, that daddy painting, that, that crucifixion you talk about, or the Lamentations, those early Florentine school, those paintings have such a direct sense of emotion and that's the pure, the electricity. And while I can't, we can't be Luddites and we can't undo the technology. I think to really appreciate these great artworks, we need to come to terms with them on their own terms mm-hmm. of their own time. I want to move to two things. And then sadly, we're not going to be able to go through all of the wings of the museum, but those who are listening can go to patrickbringley.com and arrange for him to take you on a tour. It, it'll cost you some money, but it'll be well worth it. And I want to move, though, to two things. Philip mentioned that when he goes to the museum early in the morning, he likes to see the New York Koros, which Koros was a grave marker, right? And talk a little bit about the statue that Philip mentioned, because you write of it that you say that this was a mortal man and it was placed on top of a particular man's remains. And you say that you feel a spark of pride when viewing the Koros, as if something tells you that we ourselves are the subject of this uniquely approachable masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's an important revelation to realize that in some ways, the Greeks were very far in the past. And in some ways, you know, when talking about in comparison to the millions of year old marble that they're carving, they were not so far away at all. And they had hands and hearts and heads just like we have. And when you're looking at this young man who died, you can feel that the subject matter is something that's still very alive in this world today. And when I say it's very approachable, because the Koros, you know, it's painted in a sort of adolescent period um, in art in some ways, in that it doesn't look like, you know, these perfectly, this perfect torso of Apollo that they have at the Met, for instance, where it seems sort of unreachable, unsurpassable in terms of its artistic accomplishment. This is something that's clearly made at a moment when carving a person a nude person in a freestanding statue was a new idea that had occurred to the Greeks. 
And so that the sort of it's elegant and it's inelegant. It, it's just wonderfully alive that way. It's the dawn of reason. It's the dawn of the humanist world. And as Gisela Richter, who was this great, great woman who was a legendary curator of, of Greek and Roman art, this great figure at the Met, Gisela Richter said that the the Greek archaic sculptures begin where the Egyptians left off. Hmm. Terrific. You said, Patrick, that the most wonderful sculpture in the whole museum is from uh, the Congo, I guess, right? The Congo, the Kisi, is that how you, you say it? So when you say this is the most wonderful sculpture in the whole museum, it sort of made me sit up straight. <laughs> Whoa, that's a bold statement. So, yeah. So talk a little bit about that. What it's is not- it? Give us a little bit of history from Benin to Central Africa to what is, I guess, the Congo now. Tell us a little bit about the African wing, because I don't know how many people rush there. And then tell us about what you think is the most wonderful sculpture in the whole museum and why. Sure. I mean, it's not something that I want to, you know, objectively, there's not some list up in heaven about what are the best sculptures in the Met. But I just think this thing is so wonderful. So it's from, you know, maybe just 100 or 200 years ago. They don't really know precisely when. And it's a power figure from Central Africa, from Congo. And these were figures that are carved from a tree that was chosen by the community to be carved by a master wood carver and then invested with sort of spiritual substances by a holy man, at which point the thing would be so powerful that it couldn't be held in human hands and it had to be manipulated by sticks attached to it by raffia cords. And it was very important for the community. It would give messages to men who would attend to it. It would give messages to them via dreams or via even kind of waking dreams. But what's so remarkable about it is just as a piece of sculpture that it, unlike a Koros or unlike the Greek gods, it's not a depiction of some god, but rather that the work of art itself is the god. The carver had to find in this wood something that he could make feel absolutely supernaturally beautiful and not of this earth. And if you can accomplish that from a piece of wood, and then you also, it has just this wonderful headdress and it it is still slick with oils on it, anointing oils and with rooster blood. And you can feel that he succeeded at that. And when you succeed at that, it seems it's a miracle. It's just it's sort of a creation of a new, beautiful sort of being on the face of the earth. So that's why I guess I give it some extra points. And Philip, going from that to something that Patrick wrote about, which is Monet. And there's one painting in particular, and I'll probably mispronounce it, Bethel in summer. How do you say it? Is it Bethel? You know, I'm not even sure. I, I said it for the audiobook, but now I forget what they told <laughs> they told me what the correct pronunciation was. Well, so this is a, a Monet landscape painting, and you Vithiel. say of it, yes, yes, Vithiel. He's this is where he painted the uh, the winter scenes so often. Yes, Go ahead. Patrick, you write of it. Monet's picture brings to mind 
one of those rarer moments where every particle of what we apprehend matters, and you can adore the wholeness, even the holiness of that moment. It took you a while to warm up to Monet, in a sense. You say that there's sort of a, a rivalry between the old master's ring and the 19th century wing, and you were sort of leaning on the old master's side until you sort of took the time to look at this particular Monet, what Emerson called the flash and sparkle of his vision of the world. So talk about that, and Philip, tell us a little bit about Monet as well, please. Sure. So, yes, precisely that. I mean, when you're in the old masters, people, of course, they're like, where are the water lilies? Where is Van Gogh? So in some ways, you're like, well, why don't you stay around here? Look at some look at some Rubens. This is good, too. But, yeah, I think I, in the way that I was saying that you shouldn't put yourself in front of the pictures, in some ways I did in that Monet, he's so pretty. He's on so many calendars that I was like, oh, let me go look at Cezanne. That's, that's the more kind of hardcore stuff. But that, you know, to do that is just you have a prejudice. And one day I really took to looking at Monet and or not one day, many days. And they're extraordinary. They're totally extraordinary. Many of those pictures, I mean, both the the mastery of his method, but also just like I said there, that this idea of just painting all of these little incidental sort of flashes of the, the light on this water that's so different from the old master painters because usually they have a bit of an iconographic scheme that they've got going on. You know, they, they're painting very purposefully and he is sort of painting this everything about the visual world that cannot have a sort of definite little purpose. And that in its own way is, is an extraordinary thing to try to wrap your mind around. Patrick says, and this is what I want you to talk to. He says, in talking of the Monet, he says, the kind of beauty that the old masters seldom could fit into their symbolic schemes, a beauty more chaotic and aflame than our tidying mind typically let us see. Unlike the old masters, let's remember that Monet is living in the time of tremendous transformation where the, the application of paint to a canvas or to a fresco wall surface he is he is i i think that monet's what we're looking at whether it's the, the water lilies or whether it's those you know the magpie is one of my greatest paintings of that that white snow scene with that one little black bird this is instantaneity this is capturing finally maybe 40 50 years after the invention of photography where an artist's eye is stronger than what this new mechanical device of the camera is able to show us. You know, if we want to have a picture of ourselves, we go to have our driver's license, we'll go and have be photographed at the Motor Vehicle Bureau, and that's a picture of us. But if you want a portrait of a person, let's let Titian or, or Andrew Wyeth paint our soul. And that's why Monet. Monet is all about optical veracity of a moment of light that is happening between the retina and the and the brain. And that's the, the magic of Monet. Patrick, I want to close out in the next few minutes. We started this conversation saying that this was a process that you were going through after Tom's death, and you wanted to get off of the line of moving forward and get onto the great Mandela of the circle of life. And you write in the end that the 
paintings stirred up in you dormant feelings of awe, love, and pain. And strangely, you add that you think that through this process, you reached a point where you were grieving for the end of your acute grief. So talk about that, because there is the cathartic sort of culmination of this process that you went through. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're grieving, the world is kind of open to you in some ways. Like you you go onto the subway train and you see all these strangers and you're able to kind of feel a sympathy. You have a different kind of type of vision that you might normally have because you're not just sort of in that gallop of normal thoughts in everyday life. And in some way, the process of me being at the museum was getting back into rhythm and just, you know, BSing with my fellow guards and maybe even showing up to work and being like, damn, I don't want to work in this wing. Oh, I don't like this chief, you know, thinking those sort of normal, small minded kind of thoughts that that is, you know, that's how we live. That's how we get through the days. And in some ways it was important. It was important to get back to that sort of, you can't just walk through the world, just wide eyed all the time, but there are moments where, you know, you feel, like I said, you feel, you feel like you wish you were still in that state because in some ways you feel like that state is the correct way to be because maybe you lost someone or maybe it just seems to open up things about the universe that you don't see otherwise. But I also, you know, you need to get on, you need to get on with, with life and you need to uh, reintegrate. Um, So I think I had both things going on. And you say you came to the recognition that your life, like all of our lives consists of chapters and you have to sometimes turn the page and start the next chapter, even though it feels, I guess, almost guilty to turn the page on that particular chapter. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think also I was so young when I started that you don't really realize the kind of nature of that, that even in adulthood, you keep having these chapters you know, I kind of think sometimes kids think you become an adult and then you're sort of here I am. I'm in adulthood. But uh, but no. So even leaving the Met too, just I love the job, but it just I don't know. It felt like time for a new chapter. We'll see what my next one is. I have no idea. <laughs> so here's my last question to the two of you, Patrick and then Philip. You write that sometimes you're not sure which is more remarkable that life lives up to great paintings or that great paintings live up to life. So take us out of this conversation, each of you, by giving us an answer to life lives up to great paintings or great paintings live up to life. I think, yes, I think it's precisely the fact that sort of going back and forth between those two things. You know, if you're reading the Gospels or something, Sometimes it feels like, oh, it would be ridiculous to take my little situation and equate it to the Gospels, because, of course, the Gospels is some elevated thing. But then other times you might read it and you're like, this is just an attempt to explain what's happening in anyone's life. It's, an, you know, when you're reading about the passion. So in sometimes your own life, even Homer can't compare to it. And then sometimes you read Homer and it feels like it's huger than everything in the universe. And I think it's precisely that that back and forth that that is remarkable about art and life. Philip, take us out of the interview. What's your well, answer? Well, I, I think that the value of 
experiencing art because art matters so much in our lives is to understand that we have the privilege, like reading a great novel, to experience through the eyes, through the feelings, through the emotions of whether it's one of the great authors of, of history or whether it's one of the great artists who have shared with us their moment, their vision. You don't have to be a great scholar or study art history to understand if you're standing in front of those great paintings, whether you're in the Met or you're in any museum or you're traveling around the world, if you have goosebumps and you feel that this is something larger than yourself, that you are sort of dipping into the great Jungian collective unconscious of the world. And through this moment, you are sharing something, whether you're a Buddhist monk living in Nepal in the 11th century, or whether you're uh, painting in, uh, during the French Revolution, this is a, the greatest form of communication. But we have to tune in, and we have to understand that these great artists, with their antennae giving us signals of the world that most of us can't read the signals yet, that's the privilege, to tune in, listen, look, take it, enjoy it. Patrick, amazing insights that you've brought to your career, your, your meditation through your life and your family story. My hats, I salute you for what you've done. You've left us one of the great cornerstones of understanding the world's greatest art institution. And your vision of it, for me, was a complete revelation. I've enjoyed it completely. Michael. Well, thank you, Philip, for that summary. Patrick, any last words? And then we'll say thanks. My last words are thanks. That's exceptionally kind, Philip. Thank you very much. I've been very pleased with anyone that the book has, has landed for. Uh, it, it's been amazing. And uh, thank you so much for having me. This has been great, Michael. Thank you. The book is All the Beauty in the World the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me. Thank you, Patrick, for writing this book. Thank you, Philip, for joining us. With that said, I'm Michael Zeldin. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.